Hello, my friend. This is Jobek Mutski, and welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Daryl and his insights through the years he spent doing oncology social work. He has done so much incredible stuff, helping the gay and lesbian community in dealing with cancer, helping the underprivileged. He created this amazing dating website for people who had cancer, and he's done so many other great projects. Truly, Daryl is a voice that needs to be heard. So check it out. Daryl, thank you so much for doing this. First, I want to start with, um, I want to really ask you, why did you become a social worker and, and how did you become involved in oncology? So uh, a thousand years ago when I was younger, <laughs> uh, actually, I think about uh, 34 years ago, uh, I actually uh, left college and uh, started working in banking, made a lot of money in that, and then took a year off, like a delayed gap year to travel around, volunteered in a couple of refugee uh, resettlement camps, and uh, came back to the States where I live, and thought a uh, better way for me to spend my time. So a friend of mine clued me into uh, social work as a profession. Uh, her husband uh, was HIV positive and finally died from that. And so she became a social worker, and I just followed her to uh, the university that she went to, uh, NYU. And, um, you yeah, know, it all started from there. It's a very gratifying career. Uh, oncology, though, my dad was diagnosed with prostate cancer uh, a few years after I became a social worker. So I started looking into that and uh, saw there was a lot of unsettled work around psychosocial issues in uh, oncology and cancer survivorship and thought rather than focus on refugees or HIV or fields that were already overpopulated with social workers in the uh, late 1990s, there really were very few American social workers uh, looking at cancer survivorship. So I thought uh, that's a place I could be innovative and uh, make a contribution to the field. Yeah, absolutely. So th that's quite a change from banking in, into social work. And so it's, it definitely feels like where it, it's, it's very personal, right? You're so involved. And so what drives you on, Daryl? Like, what do you want to achieve in what you do? So, yeah, I mean, it's sort of partially revenge. I mean, cancer <laughs> took my dad's life, you know, and yeah. all the lives of a lot of people I've known since. It may even take mine someday. I'm so far lucky, but uh, who knows? And it's, it's a field where you really like can see tangible results, you know, with drug addiction or refugee resettlement. You never really know what's going to happen with the patient after you're through with them. Uh, with cancer, you know, they're either happy or sad. I mean, the work that I do has very little with helping people live longer, but it has everything to do with helping people to live better and be happier in spite of their diagnosis and in spite of all the uh, stressors and devastating uh, treatments that they have to undergo. So it's a, it's a very warm and fuzzy feeling I have every day when uh, you know I can see the work that I'm doing actually play a big part in people's lives. Absolutely, Daryl. That's fantastic. And, and you're obviously doing some fantastic work specifically working with men. So, Daryl, what is it that's different about men facing cancer? Like, do we have different needs? Do, do we express things differently? So, no and yes. I mean, no, we don't have different needs in that 
We want to not be diagnosed with cancer. We want to not need to be treated. And we want to live rather than die. The um, uh, differences are more in the realm of concrete stuff. I mean, you know, like it or not, in 2018, men are still the primary income creators of a family, or if they're living by themselves, they're taking care of themselves. You know, most of uh, society around the world is still patriarchal. There are very few matriarchal societies. So there's a certain sense of, I have to take care of this, that women diagnosed with cancer don't feel. And then there are myths around this, as if like men don't speak about cancer or men have to be strong and, you know, not admit that they're ill and such. And over like the 20 years that I've been working with men in cancer, I mean, I found that just not to be true. I mean, people talk about it a lot and people will use that as an excuse to not treat men equally as well as they treat women with cancer. But in fact, I mean, men cry just as much as women do. Men get depressed. Men express themselves when they're asked to. You know, the problem with men is not so much that it's a man who has cancer, but it's the way people react to a man with cancer. You know, it's more likely that any a male or female doctor will speak to a woman and ask her how she's feeling. It's rare that a male or female doctor will ask a man diagnosed with cancer, how he's feeling. And that, I think, are some of the the critical differences. Yeah, exactly, because they always assume that you don't want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, why am I sitting here if I don't want to talk about it? You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm in your office. I'm paying you an amazing amount of money, either through insurance or out of my pocket. You know, I'm here. You be here, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess from experience, like I know that I can say that most people feel like completely overwhelmed when they're facing cancer. What advice would you give to someone who's going through it right now? Um, you know, you're human. Feel whatever you're feeling. You know, it's it's ridiculous to say to somebody, feel better than you do or feel uh, X, Y, or Z, you know, because that's your idea of the best thing to tell them or the best thing for them to feel like. You know, somebody just told you you have a good chance of dying sooner rather than later. You know, I mean, your reaction is just as valid as anyone else's. Uh, the second thing is after you get through those feelings, then you got to figure out what you want to do about the cancer itself. You know, it's a disease and it's real. And, um, you know, we're still in medieval times when it comes to treatment. You know, there are, there are no real cures for pretty much all of the cancers that are out there. There are only things that we could do to delay the onset of death. And that's really a good way to think about it, how to turn cancer into a chronic disease rather than a deadly disease. Uh, absolutely, Daryl. And one thing that's helped me is going onto specific cancer forums. Like I've been on testicular cancer forums a lot and I've been asking, you know, about symptoms. I've been asking all these things about how does this affect my, my sex life and everything else. And it's been incredibly supportive. I found that immersing myself in facts, immersing myself in information has tremendously helped me to deal with it better. Do you notice, I guess in work that you do, that, that this kind of understanding what uh, I think what you just mentioned and Understanding the facts, understanding treatment, understand what's going on around you can help you to deal with it better. 
Yeah, completely. I mean, when you're in the dark, you stumble on things. When you're in the light, you could find your way through things. You know, I mean, that sounds like a silly cliche, but I think it's very truthful around uh, understanding cancer. I mean, where is the person that really understands what cancer is about? You know, unless you went to med school or something. So to know something sort of relaxes you, takes a lot of attention off, and then gives you the tools that you need in order to talk to your doctors. You know, it's like when you had testicular cancer, I'm guessing you had more than one doctor. And I'm guessing you had, you know, you also had nurses and oncologists and all sorts of people playing yep. out in your lives. Then you had people telling you, like, uh, did you talk to this or that? Then you had the online communities, perhaps suggesting X, Y, or Z. So to be able to feel confident in your own treatment choice making is really a big deal. You know, and also it, it gives you the sense of you did the best you could, no matter what the outcome is. You know, when your head's on your pillow for the last time, you, you shouldn't feel a sense of regret that you blew an opportunity or something. You should know, like, you did the best you could. It's unfortunate we're not in the year 3018 instead of 2018. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, we just have the tools that are available for us today to fix ourselves. And they're not all that great. Uh, but we do the best we can. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you mentioned like the pressure of the pressure on the man to to be perhaps the primary welfare provider. What advice do you have on dealing with uh, with that sort of pressure? It's pressure, you know. I mean, it's like <laughs> there's not really much you can do about it. Cancer is expensive, you know. I mean, there's no cheap way to deal with disease, and cancer is one of the most expensive diseases to treat. You know, financial toxicity is as much a side effect from cancer as being bald or feeling fatigued. You know, when you don't have the money to take care of yourself or your family, you know, or when you're put in a horrible position of having to choose, do I pay for this drug versus put food on the table? You know, that's a stressor that there's just no way around, particularly here in the United States where we don't have national health care and such. There are many people in, you know, who are economically deprived or don't have large incomes that are really just dying sooner rather than later because they just don't have the cash to pay for treatment. And that's a shame. And with our current administration, obviously, it doesn't look like that's getting any better. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what do you think about the support that folks expect to get from their family, from their friends, uh, from people around them, maybe their co-workers. Do people, do you feel in general, get the support that they need? And could they do something differently, maybe to speak up, to get better support? Yeah, so I've certainly pretty much everyone around you will either stick with you or they'll run away. You know, I mean, it's usually, you know, one or the other. It's rare that somebody's sort of in the middle ground. The ones that run away, you know, the, don't chase them. You know, I mean, they're wherever they are, and they're not going to be helpful to you. They're dealing with whatever's going on for them, you know, as a consequence of you being diagnosed with cancer. The ones that are with you, they're your friends. They're your family. They're not doctors. You know, they're not going to know what to say or how to you know, make you feel better, except 
in the sense that they've done that well in the past. So if you have a friend who was soothing during uh, a relationship that went wrong, you know, three years ago, or, you know, helped you through a broken leg, that's probably a friend who will also know how to talk with you around cancer. You know, if you have a family member who, you know, wakes up an extra hour early to help you get to the toilet or, you know, whatever, that's somebody who's useful. But no one's ever going to be perfect. And it's, I mean, if you do have somebody who absolutely knows the, the best things to say and is the most comforting creature on earth and all that, you know, either that's your dog or that's an <laughs> extraordinary person in your life. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, we're all people, you know, and we all have human reactions to hearing about cancer. And there's no right or wrong about it. It's just the way it is. And, you know, a lot of people live alone. In the United States, it's like 59, uh, 49% of all adult males over age of 40 live alone. That's extraordinary. You know, I didn't know that until about two and a half, three years ago, working on a research thing on being single and having cancer. You know, so loneliness is a consequence of cancer as well. I mean, you know, imagine living alone and then you this disease that, you know, sort of people say, who can, who do you have to talk to? Or who do you have to take care of you when you don't have anyone? You yeah, know? yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. That's, that's a staggering number, Daryl. Like, I, I guess, yeah, it, it kind of uh, wakes you up a little bit. I remember that I, when I was um, on the forums and I was going through treatment and there was a guy there who was saying, look, I'm just about to start chemo. And uh, I don't know what to expect. Should I be like freezing meals and putting them in my freezer? Cause uh, I live by myself and I really don't know whether I'll be able to get out of bed and like just buy basic groceries. And I remember that shocked me. I thought, I mean, people are dealing with, you know, with cancer, with treatment on this level where it's, it's, it's loneliness. Yeah. 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 So there were like when, when we flip that around and, and if we talk about, the caregivers, like I guess if you're a partner or, or a close friend and it's someone in your family, like, cause it's, it's really tough for them. What can you do to make it, make it easier for them? And I guess, uh, how can you help them through this time, which is incredibly stressful? Yeah. So there, I guess there are two answers to that. One, <laughs> so what? You know, I mean, it's <laughs> like, you know, now's your time to be selfish. <laughs> you know, I mean, at least for a small part of your, of your diagnosis, you know, certainly in early days, you should be, or you have the permission to be selfish. But it's a good question, especially for people with children. I mean, young children, you know, like nine, 10 year olds. What do you say or not say? It's, um, there are no clear answers to that. And the uh, sort of thing to suggest to people is what kind of situations did you have that were somewhat similar or remotely similar? And how did you behave with your kids or your family members then? And then just sort of repeat that in, a, in the higher context of having cancer. But really, there's no clear answer to that. And family members, you know, you, you have the same, the dynamics of your family and friends haven't changed from the day before your diagnosis to the day after in the sense that if you didn't like them then, you're not going to like them now. You know, if they didn't like you, they're not going to like you, you know, any better now, you know, because you're diagnosed with cancer. Cancer diagnosis happens within the middle of many changing changes in relationships, both with kids as well as adults, so, you know. So 
it, it, all of this sort of returns to the fact that we're human, you know, and there's a certain relaxation about that, that you're not going to get this right or wrong. You know, you're just going to flow through it. And the better sort of posture is to understand you're going to make mistakes with everyone. But that's okay because there's no rule book around this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I love what you said about being selfish. I, I completely agree with that. It's something that I'm almost um, afraid to admit to myself <laughs> that this is a good thing to be, right? Yeah. I mean, being selfish is also a way of being very clear as what your needs are. You know, one of the problems that caregivers have is not knowing what the diagnosed person actually really wants or needs. So when you're, you know, if you're 100% selfish, you're very clear as to what you need. <laughs> yeah. That helps the other person will either decide, well, I'm going to help this person out or I'm going to think they're an ass and walk away, you know, but clarity is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. In most cases. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Darren, what are some of the other challenges that typically get overlooked when we talk about cancer? Well, money, we talked about emotional life in terms of feeling loved. Even if you live alone, to know that you love yourself, that you didn't cause your cancer. I mean, I think one of the big things around cancer is did I cause, you know, did I make my own cancer? You know, and that's kind of rare. I mean, if you live in a toxic wasteland or, you know, <laughs> Chernobyl, yeah, you, you, you did screw yourself. Sorry about that, but you did, you know. But rarely <laughs> somebody caused their cancer. And that's important to know and to feel like comforted by that you didn't do it to yourself. And it's not punishment. 15 or 20, well, 20 years ago, I started like uh, the field of LGBT psycho-oncology. Nobody had been looking at gay and lesbian cancer survivors. And many doctors were asking, you know, what did they do to cause their cancer? As if like gay and lesbian patients did something different than straight patients around cancer diagnosis. I mean, the obvious thing around prostate cancer, did anal receptive sex cause your prostate cancer? And I could point to a half a dozen urologists today that believe it does, including a very well-known one in Washington. That's crazy. But, you know, people will take their prejudices and insert it into their, their specialties, you know, around cancer. Uh, so the, the sense of blame or blaming is probably one of the least talked about and most toxic aspects about being diagnosed, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so what is the reality like if, if you're gay and, and lesbian? Like, I guess if, you, if you're a gay man and you have, uh, you have prostate cancer, what is the, that reality like and what would you say to that person? Well, it's hard to talk to your doctor. Basically, you have to find a way to either have a doctor that you're very cool with or you have to find, you know, your own strength to say, like, I, I enjoy sex with other men. What will my life be like after treatment? What will my sense of identity be like? Because most prostate cancer treatments cause impotence. So what or remove uh, sex drive. So what will that be like for me as a man who enjoys sex with other men since I've, you know, basically been out as that identity? You know, one of the treatments for prostate cancer is quite similar to the punishment that uh, gay men used to receive in the 40s, 50s and 60s, which is to take androgen deprivation therapy and to basically have your testosterone removed. So you're basically uh, chemically castrated. 
I mean, now it's a treatment for advanced stage disease and pretty much everybody welcomes that because it seems to have a good effect and adds a couple of years to your life. But imagine being a gay man saying, here's the, you know, here's this treatment that, you know, if you were arrested in the 1960s, we'd offer it to you as well, you know, and you, you know, so it, it, there are all sorts of weird things around that, you know, and, and, and I fail to understand how in 2018, we can have so many doctors who a don't care enough to learn more about their gay patients and two are just afraid to speak to their gay patients and ask them, you know, what are you, what do you need from it? What kind of sensitivity or treatment or what better explanations for treatment do you need from me? Yeah. So, uh, you know, on one hand, it's good that the field of LGBT psycho-oncology is growing. It's big in Australia. Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia is very, very good around gay men. There are a couple of universities that uh, we here in mail care uh, work with that are in Australia around research. So we can tell gay and, and bisexual men and transgender women that, you know, there's science behind a lot of what we now know around gay and lesbian survivorship. But you know, it's still a decade or two away from uh, being really a fair and equitable uh, medical treatment world for uh, LGBT cancer survivors. Yeah, absolutely. And Daryl, please tell us about your um, LGBT cancer project. Like, what's that about? And uh, what are some of the issues that really need to be spoken about out loud? So uh, the LGBT Cancer Project started in 2000, late 2004. It's literally the world's first non-national nonprofit organization or NGO focused on gay and lesbian and transgender and bisexual cancer survivors uh, from a patient's point of view. So, uh, you know, there are many cancer-focused organizations from the you know, Live Strong and Prostate Cancer UK and McMillan, you know, I mean, you can name a thousand. Uh, this was literally the first in the mid 2000s, you know. So imagine, you know, how long it took to get there. And that it, it took me, you know, which really, I mean, like, you know, I've never been an activist in the gay community, you know, to, it took me in my 30s to sort of put that together. It was something, um, you know, something that uh, I, people disliked me for initially but i think now it's uh i mean it's been replicated in the uk and a number yeah. of other uh, countries yeah. i think it, the value of it is obvious um and it's necessary i mean uh, the lgbt cancer survivor community needs an organization that can provide both advocacy and the marketing of the idea that it's a unique niche of people that have particular treatment needs yeah obviously like a lot of um, a lot of the folks you deal with um they feel that they're in trouble. Is is there a story, Daryl, that has really hit home the most for you? No, I mean, you know, they're all poignant. You know, I mean, I'm still flattered and like the idea when somebody writes an email saying thank you and this and that. And, you know, I mean, that's highly gratifying and encouraging. And not just to me, but, I'm, you know, I don't work alone. I mean, there are a lot of people that work with me now, not just in, in our organization, but there are lots of other organizations that have similar programs now. Um, no, I mean, nothing really strikes home in the sense that I don't want to say one person's extraordinary story is more important than another person's banal story. They're all important because they're all individuals that have stories. 
you know, and they're all worth hearing, you know, whether it's like, oh, thank you, you know, I, I, I learned about a particular drug that was helpful versus uh, a story where uh, like a lesbian couple, uh, you know, fighting their way in, uh, through a hospital system so that one could visit the other in the same way that a heterosexual uh, man and wife could visit. I mean, we actually had a situation, a couple of them like that. They're all important stories, and that's how it should be. I mean, nothing. I mean, it's. I mean, stories are good for fundraising and good for media and this and that. But in fact, everybody individually has the same value, and uh, I think that in itself is the main story that we want to tell: is that everyone is important. You know, it's not like anyone. I mean, whether you know you're going to die in three days in complete agony, or you have a manageable disease that you'll die from a heart attack when you're a hundred. If you're diagnosed with cancer, you're you're not in a good place, and that's important for both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, I guess I guess the thing that rings true from what you're saying is equality. Like, I guess you, people want to be treated differently. In, in all ways um, and walks of life, and that, that includes cancer, right? Yeah. And, you know, everyone is different. You know, whether you're in a refugee camp in Rwanda, you know, in Rwanda or in Syria, you know, or you're in, you know, the highest income neighborhood in New York City. I mean, it's not that you're in a better situation or worse situation. It's that you're in a different situation with different needs and different abilities to access healthcare and different understanding of what healthcare is. But, you know, cancer is cancer for everybody. You know, it may be slightly understood better here or there, and certainly there are different levels of intelligence among people. You know, somebody who went to Harvard Law School is probably going to be able to read stuff better than somebody with a third grade education or something. But, you know, that sort of obvious stuff aside, everybody's the same. You know, you don't want to hear that you got a disease that can kill you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, Daryl, I know that you also started um, Cancer Match, which is which is a dating site for cancer survivors. And it got me thinking about how, like, you know, that my partner was was really incredibly supportive uh, for me. But not everyone is so lucky. And I guess, like we talked about, like one way or another, folks end up in a position where they want to meet someone who really gets them, who they love. And you must have really also felt strongly about that in order to start Cancer Match. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically a dating site for cancer. So by cancermatch.com, also cancermatch.org goes there as well. But uh, it's, it's, you know, the idea that when you're dating, you know, you sit down and you tell your partner, you know, the person opposite you, I do this, I do that, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, you tell them you have cancer, it's like, where's the check? You know, or, <laughs> oh, I forgot, you know, it's like. You know, got to go to the toilet and never see them again, you know. So when you have two cancer survivors dating, they both know that when you say you're feeling nauseous, it's not because they look bad tonight. It's because you're feeling nauseous, you know, or you have a headache or something, you know, or, you know, imagine a date where you go to the doctor together, you know, and you hang out in the waiting room. You know, you find different strategies to enjoy your lives together. So um, that was the original idea, like, you know, that you don't have to explain so many different things that are scary to people who are not diagnosed. 
And it's worked out brilliantly. I mean, we've had marriages out of that thing. There are usually about eight or 900 people that are active every day, you know, and every year there are about 8,000 or so new people, or 9,000 last year, new people signing on. You know, it's not the largest dating site in the world. But um, it, <laughs> thank, thank God for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, nice to be here. Sorry you're here. You know, but uh, it's like, um, yeah, I mean, it's super cool. I mean, uh, if if that were the only thing I did in my life, I'd be very happy. You know? <laughs> That's fantastic. So, uh, Daryl, tell, tell me about Cancer Graph. Like, how did this um, come about and, and why do we need it? So, Cancer Graph is a mobile app. It's uh, 13 months old now. We launched it in January of last year. It, so it came from the idea that symptoms and side effects are hard to keep track of. And there are like symptom and side effect reporting apps that predated ours, but none of them were very easy to use. And none of them created a graph that showed the progression of uh, symptoms, you know, so you could visually see, you know, I had a, you know, a toothache on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and, you know, or I was feeling nauseous three days in a row or whatever. But what it also does is directly connect with your doctor. So if indeed you are nauseous three days in a row, your doctor can call you up and say you ought to drink some water because you're at risk of de dehydration or something. And so, believe it or not, that kind of app didn't exist until we came I came up with it actually and we developed it here uh, and now it's um, it's been used worldwide it's been uh, written about in peer-reviewed journals the Lancet had a really favorable article about it it's in China you know I mean we have to translate it in, in Chinese and Italian a few other languages and some more to come it's remarkable how cancer graph has taken hold of the world of cancer survivors doctors are recommending it to patients and such you know when you sit with your doctor and the doctor says hasn't seen you for a month or two months and they say how are you doing you know you got 30 seconds to sort of spiel out what it is you've been feeling instead you could actually hand that doctor a piece of paper or have it sent you know directly to their office and they could see like you know, here are specific days, times, and locations where you felt a very precise way. You know, like I had a moderate sense of pain in my hip. I had an extreme sense of neuropathy, I, you know, in my right hand. You know, I had, uh, I was, you know, my eyesight was fuzzy for three days in a row or something three weeks ago. You know, you can't remember that stuff. And nobody is good at keeping diaries. I mean, I have yet to meet anyone in my life that's ever kept a diary. I'm sure there's <laughs> someone, but I haven't met them yet. And the nice thing about Cancer Graph is it's designed so well that it literally takes seconds to record anything that you're experiencing. And since, you know, mobile phones are in our pockets or on our bed stands or laying by our side, you know, I mean, everything can be recorded easily. So even if you blow off like, you know, a third of what your experience is, you have two thirds of recordings to share with your doctor. And those things can be life-saving because they can moderate treatment. You could change medications based on uh, cancer breath. We have, to, uh, particularly around prostate cancer, we have urologists telling us that they've, and oncologists telling us they've modified treatment based on the findings from their patient's cancer breath. That's super cool. So, um, 
Yeah. So, I mean, we're happy about that. Your audience can download. It's free. You know, it's on iOS and Android and um, it's free for the world to use. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fantastic, Daryl. I know that if I if I had the dollar every time I walked out of oncologist office and thought I should have asked him about that symptom that I was feeling, uh, you know, three days ago that I completely forgot about. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely that that would be a huge help. That's actually, I guess, another way to uh, for people to find out about yourself and and what you do with mail care. I mean, I know that this is how how I stumbled upon uh, your good self. I mean, I I actually read about Cancer Graph in the Cure magazine, and I thought I better I better Google this Daryl guy, and yeah, that's how I found out about you. And I go, oh wow, <laughs> you're doing so much more than than uh, than Cancer Graph alone. So that's interesting because I did not know it was written about in Cure magazine. So, uh, I mean, we do get a lot of press on it. And I mean, you know, I'm a social worker, you know, I mean, it's not like we have a press office here or anything. So it's hard. So I'll look through or you could email it to me, but it's, uh, no, I mean, it's good that you found, I mean, finding information is so much better now than it was five or 10 or 15 years ago. Imagine being a cancer patient 20 years ago before really most people had computers to use. So, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, you'd have a book and a brochure and that's it. You know, now you have massive online communities. I mean, we run one on a platform called healthunlocked.com, which everybody's welcome to. I mean, we run an anxiety support community that has over 31,000 people on it. I mean, you know, that's incredible. You know, and it's also a way for our doctors to learn about us as patients, you know, to be able to sort of look and see what people are talking about. You know, it's not just that the communities make better patients, it makes better doctors if they took the time to look. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Daryl. And I guess with uh, all this amazing work you're doing through mail care and otherwise, like all of these fantastic initiatives and projects, they must cost a lot of energy and a lot of money. I mean, how, how do you get funded? Do you, do you get sponsorships? Do you partner up with people? How does it work? So all of that, but it's sort of like, you know, the generosity of strangers. I mean, it's like people will donate. And I encourage your audience, obviously, to go to mailcare.org and make a donation. Uh, but, you know, by serving people, people are great. You know, people who have the wherewithal to be grateful usually are grateful. And, you know, we have the usual corporate sponsorships like any other nonprofit. You know, I mean, there's no surprise there. Um, I think people would be surprised with how little influence that actually causes. I mean, there's always this idea, you know, like if you take money from, I don't know, McDonald's, you'll be start pushing, you know, hamburgers or something. And, <laughs> you know, really, it, 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 it doesn't play out that way. You know, I used to joke, like, I can't be bought by a half a tuna sandwich, you know, and it's like, you know, I, I mean, I can't even be bought by massive amounts of money because there's really nothing to buy. I mean, we don't have really anything to sell. You know, so, I mean, it's like when corporations offer us money, you know, it's they like to be affiliated with an organization that does good things. So, you know, if it helps McDonald's to say we're helping mail care and look at how good, our, you know, our hamburgers are really good hamburger, you know, uh, <laughs> McDonald's is a really good guy or whatever, you know, but you know, there's nothing you could do about that. But I mean, it doesn't influence anything we do. You know, I mean, it's so it's like 
you know, happy to take your checks, but really most of our money comes from individual donations. And some of them are quite large, but most are like, you know, two and three figure kind of uh, checks or donations by PayPal or whatever. And, uh, you know, it's not just one or two, it's many thousands of those, and they add up. And then it gives us the privilege and honor to do these really good, great, innovative things that help even more thousands of people, and especially people who can't afford to make donations. I mean, all of our work goes around the world. Also, you know, we could not do this 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. It's all internet kind of bonuses, so to speak. But I mean, that we could have free downloadable apps like Cancer Graph. That all comes from individual donations from Western countries or developed countries that are now benefiting both in developed countries and undeveloped countries, you know, or undeveloped neighborhoods. I mean, there's plenty of poverty in every country, in Australia, United States, everywhere. You know, so it's like there's a really good sort of bonus to any donation done to an organization like mail care. I mean, we're not the only one, but we're certainly, I think, one of the better ones. So, um, and it's an honor, you know, I mean, when people write a check, it's, it's their vote of confidence in what we've done and, or it's their gratitude for what we've done for them. And, you know, that just makes us cry with gratitude. It's, it's genuine. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really great. And yeah, and things cost money. I mean, you know, I mean, writing code just takes a lot of time. I mean, Cancer Graph took two and a half years to make, you know, and through wow. 78 iterations of it. And uh, algorithms are all unique to what, you know, which is why it works so quickly. That didn't, you know, happen overnight. So a lot of people put in a lot of hours into that product. You know, Cancer Match takes a lot of moderation. Because they're spammers and, you know, there's also, I mean, ISO and stuff use it, you know, to get PlayStations <laughs> and convert into bombs or something. I don't know. Oh, that, wow. <laughs> no, it's, it's, I mean, that's another show and a different kind of show. But, yeah, you know, being on the other side of like a dating site or a community site, I mean, it's not just about like Russian escort services. I mean, it's really like, you know, geopolitics and how to finance. Uh, and so a lot of these scammers are actually behind, you know, really bad organizations, you know, that, that are looking for funding to um, create products that kill other people. So uh, there's a lot of uh, work involved in ferreting those guys and women out and protecting our genuine core community. So all of that stuff costs money, you know, just because it's time and, um, you know, and it's electricity. I mean, you know, our server stuff is one of our bigger expenses. Yeah, absolutely, Daryl. That, that's fantastic. So, so Daryl, if someone wanted to really find out more about the project you just mentioned, the ones that we just talked about, or uh, even something that we, we missed perhaps, or even to participate if someone wanted to be a part of it, or maybe to um, help fundraise, like what would they do? How would they get in touch with you? And what sort of websites would they visit here? Mailcare.org is a good starting point. M-A-L-E-C-A-R-E.org. And I mean, it presents itself initially in English, but you can see at the top part of the screen that there are a lot of languages, I think eight or nine different languages, that most everything is translated in. Yeah, and however you got in touch with me, you know, I mean, if you read if you read about <laughs> milk every year, well, you know, and we love email. You know, I mean, being able to know what people want or what they're suffering helps us to figure out what to do next. 
you know, we're not an insulated community or organization. I mean, we actually reach out to people and focus group and make phone calls to people, you know, and say, like, what do you need? You know, we don't sit around waiting for people to tell us. But, you know, when people do tell us, that's useful and that's helpful for everybody. So we have mailcare.org, M-A-L-E-C-A-R-E.org. Daryl, thank you so much. You're an inspiration. Oh, very sweet of you to say thank you. 